chasing dramas. This is the podcast that discusses Chinese culture and history through historical Chinese dramas. We are your hosts, Karen and Kathy. Today, we are discussing episodes 10 through 12 of the story of Yanxi Palace or Yanxi Gongrue. This podcast is in English with proper nouns and certain phrases spoken in Mandarin Chinese. For these podcast episodes, we first do a drama episode recap and then discuss the culture and history portrayed in the episodes. And today, there is quite a bit. If you are new to the podcast, welcome. Do check us out on Instagram or Twitter at Chasing Dramas. And also visit us on our website at www.chasingdramas.com. We have just revamped our website with all of our drama and movie podcast transcripts uploaded, so please do take a look. Let's begin with our drama episode recap. Our main character, Ying Luo, in the last few episodes has moved over to Changchun Palace to serve the Empress, but with the express goal of uncovering the truth about her sister's death. She handpicked up a jade pendant from the Empress's brother, Fu Hung, and he confirms that it is his, but denies knowing a woman named Aman, who is Ying Luo's sister. She vows to do some further investigating. The key development in episode 10 is that the Emperor meets Ying Luo and actually recognizes her as the maid who made up that whole story about scratching the itch for the Emperor's sacred tree. The encounter was quite unlucky for Ying Luo as she was explaining her view of the relationship between Dong Efei and Emperor Shun Zhi. Dong Efei was the love of Emperor Shun Zhi's life, the second emperor of the Qing dynasty, and she passed away at a young age shortly after the death of her infant son. She was only 21 when she died. The emperor Shun Zhi could not handle the death of his beloved concubine and fell into a heavy depression and died not too long after at the age of 24. But there's a lot of mystery surrounding his death. In some books, they say he didn't actually die, but went to become a monk and lived the remainder of his life in a monastery. Others say he died of smallpox. Regardless, this was a tragic love story. Except, Wei Yingluo chimed in that she would rather the emperor not have any feeling, which was overheard by our current emperor, Qianlong. He was about to drag her off for punishment before the empress saves her. Ying Luo also thinks quickly on the spot to avoid punishment. But the emperor now recognizes who she is and is full of annoyance. He's also annoyed that his head eunuch, Li Yu, missed this woman during his search. Quite a hilarious scene ensues because the emperor has nobody to kind of let out his anger except for the poor eunuch. My one question mark in this scene is that Ying Luo says she's not very learned and hasn't read many books, but was able to whip out stories and anecdotes of previous emperors. Does that sound like someone who doesn't have any education? There is then a quick scene with Ying Luo and Fu Hong, where Ying Luo gifts a heated pouch to Fu Hong, which can be viewed as a heartfelt gift in the bitter cold winter. In reality, it's a way for Ying Luo to mess with Fu Hong as that pouch was made to burst. 
Luckily for Fu Hong, and unluckily for his friend Hai Lancha, Hai Lancha was on the receiving end of this burst pouch and got scalded quite badly. When Fu Hong goes to interrogate Yin Luo about it, though, she roundly denies any knowledge that this would happen. And so this only piqued the interest of Fu Hong a little bit more. But, I mean, Yin Luo had her plans foiled of hurting Fu Hong for the moment. Elsewhere, Xian Fei hears word that her brother has contracted dysentery in prison and desperately needs money to see a doctor. If we recall, in the last couple of episodes, Xian Fei's brother was embroiled in a corruption scandal and is now in prison. Xian Fei's family also has no money left, and she unfortunately only has her annual allowance, which is paltry for what she needs right now. She thinks that maybe the Imperial Household Department could give her her annual allowance ahead of time, but unfortunately they also refuse because they are doing an internal audit. Except the department has fallen under the control of noble consort Gao's father, which means that the comings and goings of such requests are naturally told to Gao Guifei. That night, Xianfei instructs her maid Jenner to help sell some of her beloved jewelry and accessories outside of the palace for money for her brother. They meet two eunuchs who are able to help bring the goods outside. But just as Xianfei gives these two eunuchs the jewelry, Gao Guifei and company arrive. Selling property from the palace, I guess, is a crime, and Gao Guifei takes this opportunity to humiliate Xianfei, even though... Xianfei only attempted to sell her personal belongings and not anything gifted from the emperor. But that doesn't mean anything as Gao Guifei forces Xianfei to kneel for forgiveness and also has her servants destroy Xianfei's jewelry. What's also unfair is that one of the eunuchs turned on the other eunuch and laid blame on this whole transaction onto that poor eunuch. To add insult to injury, Jenner made claims that the eunuch and her were the ones to work together to steal from Xianfei in an effort for Jenner to take the blame away from Xianfei in front of Gao Guifei. So Jenner was trying to protect her master, whereas the eunuch was just pretty much selling out his uh, disciple. This eunuch is extremely upset at the injustice for being dragged into something he knew nothing about, but was punished to 100 canings. This eunuch is one to watch, and this interaction where he was the fall guy for Xianfei will be important for the rest of the drama. In episode 11, we see him mercilessly bullied by other eunuchs for his fall from grace because apparently he had a cushier job than he does now, which is he's responsible for waste sanitation in the palace. And that equates to the lowest of the low for eunuchs. This poor guy, Yuan Chun Wang, that is his name, does not get to eat anything and resorts to stealing dog food in order to survive in the palace. Really quite a poor thing, and you can see how fortunes of servants change in an instant in the palace. After all of that, let's turn to the true star of these few episodes, Xue Qiu, Gao Guifei's dog. 
Jiaping, who works for Gao Guifei, now must not allow Yu Guiren from birthing a smart son to surpass her own, and therefore she must find a way to prevent Yu Guiren from giving birth. As a reminder, Jiaping is the mother to the fourth prince. One day, Jiaping invites Gao Guifei and her dog to the garden for a walk. The Empress, Yu Guiren, and Ying Luo are also on a walk, with Yu Guiren feeling much better after the scares from prior episodes. Yet, Yu Guiren is scared of dogs, and the moment she sees Xue Qiu, she hastily requests to leave. But Jia Pin and Gao Guifei do not let Yu Guiren leave, and in an instant, this dog, Xue Qiu, jumps up, and I don't know if she, or if the dog really attacks Yu Guiren, just more like scares her, and Yu Guiren screeches in fright before Ying Luo steps in and saves Yu Guiren by kicking Xue Qiu away. Yu Guiren has her wits scared out of her again and is taken for another checkup. The thing is, it's not lost on anyone in attendance that Xue Qiu's actions were done to harm Yu Guiren's child. This time, though, it wasn't Gao Guifei who made the orders, but Jia Pin instead. At first, when I saw this scene, I was like, oh gosh, this was not a smart way to harm Yu Guiren. Though, afterwards, I realized that, you know what? Gao Guifei knows exactly why Jia Pin did it. It's for her son, the fourth prince. And it wasn't Gao Guifei who plotted this the first time. I appreciate this because I think Jiaping's tactics were a little too obvious. And more nefarious plots are uncovered by Ying Luo against Yu Guiren from Jiaping, and they decide to set traps to catch this manipulative Jiaping in the act. Did you know, Kathy, that Jiaping worked with Yu Guiren's maid, who is actually uh, Changbai's wife in Zhufo. Oh, that's where she's so familiar. I was like, oh, I know your face. Ah, nice catch. Well, the opportunity arrives soon after when an imperial tribute consisting of lychee trees arrives from Fujian province to the capital. These trees are a specific and special gift from the emperor to the empress. These precious trees are given to Ying Luo to manage as the Empress wants to hold a tea party with these lychees as the piece de resistance. What was originally set to be a grand and pleasant affair turns into one with multiple twists and turns. Behind the scenes, Ying Luo and company are trying to catch Jia Pin, giving harmful medicine to Yu Guiren on the day of the tea party only for Ying Luo to realize that it was a trap. When she returns back to the rooms where the lychee trees are kept, she finds that the trees have been destroyed and all of the lychee are now fallen onto the ground. What is Ying Luo to do? These trees are to be specifically revealed in front of the emperor and empress to enjoy and pick for the freshest taste possible. How will they be able to do that now? Ying Luo again thinks quickly on her feet. She runs over to Yu Guiren's palace and requests her presence at the banquet. This will be important to aid the empress in Ying Luo's idea. The tea party continues with a number of lychee dishes, but Gao Guifei and Jia Pin insist that it is time to see the lychee tree for some fresh fruit. 
all of this was part of their plan, and they cannot wait for this to unfurl. But shortly after, Yu Guirin arrives and takes her spot just as Ying Luo also arrives with one tree that is covered up. The moment that the covering is removed, the dog Xue Qiu bursts from the tree and runs around the room, much to the fright of everyone in attendance. Yu Guirin, in particular, is scared out of her wits again and points to Gao Guifei that her dog already scared her last month. Does she want to scare her again and kill her child? The emperor hears this and is furious to know that Gao Guifei's dog has wreaked such havoc in the last few weeks, and especially today. It doesn't help that the empress and Chun Fei all step in to blame the owner of the dog rather than the dog itself, which Gao Guifei was attempting to do. Both she and Jia Ping are at a loss at what to do because their plans are completely foiled now, and the blame has been pushed onto them. I mean, the dog is there, so and it is hers, so there's really not much more she can say. The result comes directly from the emperor. Jiapin is demoted to Guiren, so from a concubine to a noble lady, and restricted from leaving her palace for three months. Gao Guifei has her income suspended for one year and told to reflect on her mistakes. This dog is also never to appear in front of the emperor again. Which is kind of um, code word, code name, whatever you have it for, like, please dispose of the dog. The saga of the dog is now over, but it's not before long that the emperor realizes something's off. The entire Liti tree was destroyed. The dog could probably only destroy the lower part of the tree. There's no way the dog could have destroyed the entire tree. This must be something that Yingluo planned, but recognizing that this was probably done to protect the empress. The emperor doesn't inquire any further. Elsewhere, the empress used a rather clever excuse of rewarding the person who gifted her her favorite birthday gift to reward Xianfei with some much-needed money to save her brother. While Xianfei doesn't necessarily want to take the money from anyone, particularly the Empress or Chunfei, she now has the money to save her brother. Xianfei is really reluctant because now she's indebted to Chunfei, who told the Empress about her need for money. This will turn to be quite the undoing for Xianfei in the next episode. In these couple of episodes, we have quite a bit of Chinese culture involved, so let's talk about our fluffy little Pekingese first. In Mandarin, they are called Beijing Quan or Jingba Quan, or also Shizuko, which means the lion dog. The Pekingese were the favored pets of the imperial royal family spanning millennia. Pekingese dogs are said to have been favored by the royal family dating all the way back to the Qin Dynasty in 226 BC. In the Tang Dynasty, there are clear records that no one outside of the imperial palace was allowed to breed or own a Pekingese. There are indeed records of people who tried to smuggle Pekingese outside of the palace and were tried for their crimes. Sometimes the punishment was death. 
It was also during the Tang Dynasty that these dogs were so favored that they were buried alongside emperors when they died. This was so that the dogs could also be reincarnated with the emperor in the next life. Because of their status as royal dogs, they were very much purebred dogs, and one of the only dogs to remain as the quote-unquote royal dog for 2,000 years. During the Qing Dynasty, these dogs were still very much favored by the royal family. The famous Empress Dowager Cixi reportedly had over 1,000 Pekingese in the Forbidden Palace and had dedicated departments of eunuchs to take care of them. In the drama, the poor eunuch Yuan Chunwang is treated like dirt compared to the dog, but that was not too far from reality. Apparently, if palace maids accidentally touched a favored Pekingese, uh, they could have been sentenced to death. And yes, food for these dogs probably were better than what they served to eunuchs. Outside of the palace, if normal people saw these dogs with the royal family, of course, they also had to bow to them. Uh, can I be reincarnated back in time to be a Pekingese in the Qing Dynasty? This sounds like a very cushy lifestyle. I know. There are a couple of legends related to the origin of the Pekingese. Most are related to Buddhism, actually. There's one legend in which a lion and a marmoset, which is a type of monkey, fell in love, but the lion was too big. The two told Buddha about their troubles, and the Buddha then made the lion the size of the monkey, and we have their descendants, the Pekingese. Okay, that's a real, really weird story. Not sure how much I buy into this one, but the monkey maybe is off because marmosets are indigenous to the New World, and these dogs have been around for like thousands of years. So maybe the story is the same, but the monkey is different. The next story kind of mixes up legends and history. In Buddhism, the lion is a symbol of strength and protection. Buddhism gradually made its way to China and became a popular religion. A Han Dynasty emperor, Han Mingdi, who lived from 28 AD to 75 AD, said, Well, I need to have a lion too. The emperor then asks, What does a lion look like? And someone said, it looks like, apparently, a fluffy tiger creature. <laughs> this emperor said, okay, then find me something like a tiger, and voila, this lion tiger, or shi zichuan, or Pekingese, was presented to the emperor. I think they are getting their big cats mixed up because there's a tiger and a lion. They are not the same thing, but I guess yeah. they confused the different types of big cats. Well, it's more the, the fluffiness of the Pekingese uh, with the, the ears kind of made it seem like a lion's mane. And that was like the closest they could get to a tiger as well. So now we have a lion dog. Okay. Over the millennia, the Chinese often prayed to the gods and mystical creatures for good luck and protection. This includes stone lions and stone versions of a mythical creature called Qilin. But if you look closely at these stone lions outside of Chinese homes, they actually resemble the Pekingese quite a bit. Now, there are a couple of stories on the introduction of the Pekingese to the West. 
Pekingese were unknown to the Western world until the 1860s during the Second Opium War. The emperor Xianfeng and his court fled the old summer palace Yuanmingyuan when the Western forces invaded. One story is that an elderly aunt stayed behind. When the Anglo-French forces stormed the palace, she committed suicide. The invaders found five Pekingese dogs mourning her body. A British soldier, Captain John Hart Dune, brought the first one to survive the voyage back to England and presented the dog to Queen Victoria, who named it Ludi. Other dogs were also sent back, including a pair from Lord John Hay, who gifted them to his sister, the Duchess of Wellington. Currently, purebred Pekingese are extremely rare, if not almost extinct. Most of the ones seen now globally are crossbreeds. However, that doesn't mean that they aren't popular. Pekingese are apparently one of the most popular breeds in China, and since having lost its status as the royal dog, most everyone just decides to go get one for themselves. They are nonetheless fluffy, lovable, and apparently great guardian dogs. Indeed, a Pekingese named Wasabi won Best in Show at the Westminster Kennel Club Dog Show in 2021. If you, listener, have a Pekingese, let us know. We would love to see him or her. Next up is the fruit that is the focus of these episodes, li zhi or lychee. Li zhi is native to southeast and southwest provinces in China. The Canton or Guangdong and Fujian provinces are the most bountiful in terms of lychee harvest. Fujian is the province where the lychee are sent from for this drama. And lychee is one of my favorite fruits. I love them when we go to Chinatown in New York City in the summertime and we can get fresh lychee. It's always like, oh, let me get a bunch of them. Currently, lychee can be found in the rest of Southeast Asia, including Vietnam, Cambodia, and Malaysia. Lychee trees are to be grown in tropical climates that is frost-free. It also needs a lot of rainfall and humidity, which makes sense because Guangdong and Fujian provinces are literally just that, and why it was such a troublesome journey to get from Fujian to Beijing. The lychee fruit is either round or an oval-shaped berry, around like 5 centimeters long and 4 centimeters wide. The outside is a bumpy red skin that must be peeled. Red when it is ripe, and when it's not, it's more of like a yellowy-green color. The lychee itself bears a fleshy fruit that is very moist and sweet, and it is of a pale white, almost clear color. There is an inedible dark brown seed at the center, so please watch out when you're eating it to not bite through the whole thing. You gotta make sure you spit out the seed as well, otherwise your teeth will not be happy with you. This is super interesting because we are reading Wikipedia to start off the English notes for the podcast, and Wikipedia says that the earliest cultivation of lychee dates back to 1059 AD with unofficial reports in China referring to lychee dating back to 2000 BC. If I read Chinese by Ke, the first mention of the fruit or lychee dates back to the Han Dynasty, so 202 BC. 
A rhapsody from the famous Western Han Dynasty poet Sima Xiangru, who lived from 179 to 118 BC, clearly mentions the fruit. Lychee has been an imperial tribute item dating back all the way to the Han Dynasty. The Emperor Han Wudi even tried to plant a lychee tree in the imperial palace but was unsuccessful. Lychee has been a part of the Chinese culture and psyche for a long time. Indeed, there are countless poets who wrote poems, ballads, rhapsodies, whatever you have about this fruit. From the Tang Dynasty to the Ming Dynasty, so, like, for me, if there are poems talking about this fruit in, like, the 800s, I kind of get the feeling from Wikipedia that they might be wrong on this. There's no way cultivation only started in 1059 AD. Maybe mass cultivation? Or, yeah, it depends on the definition of cultivation, you know? Who are we to say? Somebody who's an agricultural specialist, let us know. In episode 11, the Empress herself recites a poem about lychee. It is written by the famous Tang Dynasty poet Du Mu. It goes as such. Chang an hui wang xiu cheng dui, shan ding qian men si di kai, yi qi hong chen fei zi xiao, wu ren zhi shi li zhi lai. My translation roughly goes like this. Looking back at the Li Mountain from the capital of Chang'an, the scene looks like a fine silk. The palace doors at the top of the Li Mountain open to reveal the splendor of Hua Qinggong. Outside the palace, a horse races through with dust in the wind. The concubine inside the palace smiles. No one knows that the lychee has arrived. So, listener, what do you think about this poem? It's kind of odd, right? Especially the last line, where the lychee arrives, but no one knows that it has arrived. What does that mean? But that is what makes this poem great. This poem is a kind of subtle but very scathing commentary on the lavishness that Emperor Tang Xuanzong bestowed on his beloved concubine Yang Guifei. For his concubine, the emperor spent countless amounts of wealth to please her. The line, no one knows that the lychee arrives, isn't taken to be literal. The concubine knows, the emperor knows, and the rider knows. But the world doesn't know. The world didn't know that the emperor quote-unquote wasted all of this money and effort to get a smile from his concubine. It was kind of so bad that the emperor stopped paying attention to state matters, which led to a revolt led by An Lushan. The emperor, court ministers, and this favored concubine all had to flee the capital. The emperor forced Yang Guifei to commit suicide as a way to appease everyone's anger. In the end, the revolt was quashed, but the emperor would lament the death of his love. Yang Guifei, or the famous consort, died in 756. The author of the poem, Du Mu, lived from 802 to 852. 
He lived in the aftermath of the rebellion and surely had a lot to say about the emperor and his lavish spending that ultimately led to the demise of his reign. And what some can, not some, many argue is basically the, the demise of the Tang Dynasty. Now, back to this drama. The Empress's point was that the Tang Emperor had fast horses race the lychee fruit to the capital. How did Emperor Qianlong do it here? If you just listened to what I said about the poem, there probably would have been no way that the Empress would just have dared to recite this poem in front of the Emperor. This poem was basically a jab at the Tang Dynasty Emperor for being kind of a terrible ruler who, for the one smile of his concubine, basically destroyed his empire. Mm. Emperor Tianlong, who in this drama so far was all about solidifying his empire's power, would probably not have been too happy with a comparison or an accusation like this. I mean, maybe he would have been fine with it. Maybe he thought, well, the Tang Dynasty Emperor was not smart enough and wasted his time on the concubine, but I'm way better than him because not only can I have the lychee sent across canals, but my empire also won't fall. And I still get a swell from my empress. Yeah, I don't know. What do you think? I'm partially in the camp that maybe the screenwriter picked the wrong poem for this quote. <laughs> I don't know. It, it kind of makes this point, but after doing this research, my reaction was, oof, this is not a good one to pick. <laughs> I mean, it's a pretty poem on the surface, but... Mm. Mm. Now, this whole scene with the tea party and the lychee trees probably wasn't true to history, but is just here for our enjoyment. In the Qing Dynasty archives, there's clear documentation that in the 25th year of Qianlong's reign, 20 lychee fruits were presented to the emperor as tribute. The fruits were then gifted to the empress dowager, then the rest of the imperial harem. We're currently only in the sixth year of Tianlong's reign, so that's like a bug. That means that even 15 years later, the empress herself could only get like one or two fresh lychee fruits. However, there are records in the Qing Dynasty of trying to transport whole lychee trees, but that wasn't super successful. Historically, lychee was only introduced outside of China to Myanmar in the late 17th century and then onwards to India, and then to Hawaii in the 1880s and 1890s. For those of you who have never had the pleasure of trying it, please do see if you can find some. They are a delectable treat. The flowers bloom in spring and the fruit is harvested during early summer. We typically see them available in June and July. We're recording this episode in August and it's already kind of rare to find delicious and fresh lychee. I personally have a really good friend who loves lychee, so I try to always make sure I have some when I know she's visiting. I will say some people might not like lychee if their first try is like a sour one, um, but please just make sure you seek some out fresh lychees during the summer months because they are really, really good. And also try a lychee martini. Those are really, really good. <laughs> Lastly, let's discuss the saying that the Emperor Qianlong quotes when he asks who will take the blame for the destruction of the lychee. The saying goes as this, 
古寺出于侠，归欲毁于独中，是谁之过语 ？The translation is as such: the tiger and the rhinoceros fled from the cage. The jade tortoise was destroyed in the box. Whose fault is it? This originates from Lun Yu or the Analects of Confucius, which was a collection of sayings and ideas that are attributed to Confucius and his contemporaries and disciples. This was first compiled roughly around the Warring States period between the fifth and third century BC, and was finalized during the Han Dynasty. This particular phrase comes from Chapter Sixteen or Ji Shi of the Analects. The premise is that the Ji clan from the kingdom of Lu wants to invade a neighboring smaller country, Zhuan Yu. Confucius's disciples come to him to discuss the potential battle. Confucius roundly chides his disciples for allowing this to happen, saying that they must find a way to stop the battle. He then says the phrase "Hu si chu yu xia, gui yu hui yu du zhong shi shi zhi guo yu." Basically, as a way to say, if those who want to fight end up destroying something, it's the fault of those who could have prevented the tragedy. Okay, I'm super oversimplifying it. There's a lot more to this chapter. It's quite dense. I'm also not a Confucius scholar. If we do have some scholars out there, please chime in. This chapter, on the whole, reflects Confucius's aversion to warfare and instead trying to find alternate ways to solve the issue, whether that's through reallocation of wealth or land. In the drama, the emperor uses this phrase to chide Gao Guifei by saying that the issue with the dog is because she's the owner. I guess the whole thing makes sense, but the Part where we discussed earlier, where、um, Wei Yingluo apparently is the only one who understands this, or it goes over everybody's head except for Yingluo, is kind of not plausible. I feel like the drama did sort of square it with Yingluo a few scenes later saying that like those are literally the only lines she knows from Lun Yu or the Analects, but. I feel like they needed some way to say, like, how is it that the maid knows and some other、um, concerts didn't know、uh, to round out the scene. Ah、oh, well, Wei Yingluo better watch out because she's got the favor of the empress, but now the emperor is very annoyed at her. He just doesn't know what to do with her at this moment. And that is it for this episode. It was a lot of culture and history, so we hope you enjoyed it. Please go and find Alici if you're able to. If you're looking for sites to watch Chinese dramas and you're in the U.S., head over to Jubao TV. It's a free service that has a selection of Chinese dramas and movies to watch. You can stream it through the website Jumo. Xumo, or else access it on TV if you have Xfinity or Cox Contour. They've also recently launched on Sling TV. Again, all this is free. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of Chasing Dramas. We will catch you all in the next episode.